Let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. We're going to be looking in Isaiah today. We put that one slide up there for that song just to see how well you would follow. I think that was supposed to be the background singer going ooh and ah or something. I'm not sure, but you did well. did very well. You know, the holidays that a society keeps tells you a lot about the heart of that society. Uh, in ancient times, the uh, pagan people would uh, worship the uh, changing of the seasons uh, between the, the, you know, the different uh, types of times of season. And they would all wrap that around their mythological gods that they believed uh, were in charge of those things. And they had festivals and holidays and, and so forth that uh, commemorated that. Uh, the Jewish people, of course, didn't do that. But the Jewish people did worship uh, their God in many, many festivals. Sometimes we get the idea that that the Jewish people were very somber and, and never, never had a good time and so forth. But if you look at all the feasts and festivals they had, sometimes going over a week at a time, uh, where they not only worshipped God and did sacrifices, but they rejoiced with one another, had feasts, they, they ate together, they just enjoyed that. And those holidays, if we want to call them that, tell us where their heart was. In America, we find that most of our holidays, and we have a lot of them, don't we? If you're a state worker, you know that. And, <laughs> There's a lot of holidays out there, and uh, I don't know that any of them are really religious in nature. None of them go back to God. Some of them had their roots there, uh, probably Christmas as much as any, as we have the roots there of the, of the incarnation. But really, most of us celebrate Christmas as a secular holiday. That's how most people live. And uh, so we do things that are secular. We do things that are enjoyable. We like the traditions. We like the food. We like the fellowship. Uh, we like the music and so forth. And all those things could be very good. Uh, but at the same time, there's often a disconnect between uh, the Christmas season and what we would call the incarnation. And so as we come today, we're, we're going to use the opportunity to, of the season to point us back to Jesus Christ and His coming. Uh, the incarnation is one of the great uh, events of all times as God became man, entering time and space of humanity. And... Uh, as he does that, we don't often look at that. We often look at the cross, we look at the resurrection, we talk about so many things that he does, but the incarnation sometimes can get pushed to the side. And so I'm glad for a season where we can just kind of push this forward and take a good look at what Jesus Christ has done for us and why he came at what we call uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus at the incarnation. We're going to look today at Luke, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Normally we turn to Luke or Matthew or one of those passages but today we're not going to do that. We're going to go to the Old Testament because there's so much in, a, in the prophetic book of Isaiah that concerns the, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ and His purposes for coming. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at the promise of the Incarnation. We're going to look at the provisions of the Incarnation. And we're going to top it off by looking at the purpose of the Incarnation. So let's start with the promises. And we see in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 2, he says, the, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Uh, we find as he moves into this section that we are more familiar with, starting with verse 6, that he is talking about uh, people that, that need light. There's a great darkness here. The world is enveloped in darkness. What darkness needs is light, and so a great light is coming into a dark world. And then starting with verse 6, he begins to talk about what that might look like. And, and so we, we see a number of things that entail this coming of this light to the world. First of all, we know we're talking about a baby. 
In verse 6 it says this, For a child would be born to us, a son will be given to us. As Linda sang, the, uh, the baby was human. The baby slept. The baby did things that babies do. And it, the, Jesus Christ uh, was truly the God-man. And so a child comes. Oh, Isaiah is the first one to mention that a baby would come, that a child would come. And so we find that, that he comes to earth as a human being. Secondly, we find that this little baby is not an ordinary baby by any means. It goes on, we go on down to uh, the end of the verse. It says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, when you need advice, you might turn to a counselor, and those counselors can be helpful, but no counselor is infallible. No counselor is omniscient. All counselors fail to, at some degree, but not this one. This is the wonderful counselor. This is the counselor that cannot fail. This is a counselor whose every piece of, of counsel is perfect, and that counsel is found in the Word of God for us today. And then second, thirdly, we find that he is the mighty God. So Isaiah makes a straight beeline to who he is. This is the mighty God. Uh, this little baby that lay in that manger was the God of the universe for all eternity. Uh, he has ruled and reigned over his universe that he created. And he is the mighty God, though he is in the form of a little baby in that manger on this occasion. And then we find that he is the eternal father. And that kind of throws us at first because we know the first member of the Trinity, God the Father, is the Father, right? And this is a, a reference to God the Son and the second person of the Trinity. And so as we look at that, we, that kind of throws us. You might jot down in your notes or your Bible somewhere that this could be translated Father of Eternity. Father of Eternity or the source of life. He's not saying that the Son is the same as the Father, there, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not saying the Father and the Son are the same member of the Trinity. He is saying that he is the source of all life. Uh, he, as a Father, he has always watched over us. And he's watching over us eternally. Eternal past, eternal future. He is the eternal Father. And then finally we see here that he's, he's, going, to establish, he's going to establish a kingdom. Well, well, before I get to that, go back up. Uh, into verse 6 again. He is the Prince of Peace. Let's not forget that one. Everywhere we look at the incarnation, the idea of peace shows up. He is the Prince of Peace. Uh, what, what do people search for more than peace? Peace in this world between nations and, and governments. Peace uh, between in our own souls. Peace between us and God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who comes to bring peace. And then finally, it's an everlasting peace as well. It, he is forever our counselor. There is, no in, there is no end to his increase. And so we have an everlasting peace that's coming through the Prince of Peace. What promises does this prince bring? Look at verse 7. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Once again, peace. But look at the government. We're going to get to this right at the end of the message, but I want you to note here, as he talks about this, he's not, he's saying that the Lord has come for a purpose. And we might miss this if we're not careful. He's come for the purpose of setting up a kingdom. A kingdom in which we will live with him and rule and reign with him as his people if we know him as Savior forever. And so his purpose was, was more than what we often think of. It is to establish a kingdom. And I'll come back to that in a moment, but it's going to be a kingdom, he says, of peace. Peace. 
Angels proclaim that peace. The earth longs for that peace. The world still looks for that peace. But he's come to give us a kingdom of peace. Next, we see that he reigns from David's throne. That tells us that he will actually be on earth during his kingdom age. He will, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. Uh, he will rule all from David's throne and promise, you know, keeping the promise to David that his, he would always have a king on his throne. And so we find a, a true king living on the earth, ruling from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And then thirdly, he will establish his kingdom on the principles of justice and righteousness in this passage. Don't we long for that? Uh, a, a justice system that is truly just? A world that is truly righteous? There's never been a kingdom like that on the face of the earth. People long for it. People do things to accomplish it. And we ought to aim that direction, but we've never had one. Because we're not just, and we're not righteous in and of ourselves. And then it is an everlasting kingdom from then on and forevermore. And so once this kingdom is established, nothing can shake it. You know, as we hear all these pundits say different things about life in this world, uh, uh, every once in a while we, we get some big news flash that, you know, the, the world's going to come to an end. You know, if we don't, if we don't stop global warming, we're, we're going to disintegrate the earth. Uh, an asteroid's going to hit us one day and we're just going to all die. Uh, one thing after the other. So remember back about 10 years ago when people were claiming the, 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 the Mayan calendar stopped? On December 21, uh, 2010, 12, I think. And the world was going to come to an end then. It didn't. I got news for you. It's not. It's not going to come to an end. The Lord is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom, his righteous kingdom, his perfect kingdom, and it will exist forevermore. And that is good news for us. Don't miss the purpose of the incarnation then. Don't miss this prophecy of what is to come and what the Lord is doing. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew their airplane in December. And after flying their airplane for the first time, they sent a, a telegraph off, telegram off to their sister. Their sister's name was Catherine. And the telegram went like this. We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Now, Catherine ran over to the local newspaper and showed the message to the editor of the newspaper. And here's what the newspaper editor said. How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> uh, totally missed the big event. Mankind had flown. They missed it. You know what? We can miss the purpose of the incarnation. In all of our trappings and traditions and enjoyments, let us focus for a bit at least on the coming of the Son of God who came to earth that we might become the sons of God. He became a man that we might become the sons of God. Now let's move on to the provision. Go to chapter 53 of Isaiah with me. The provision. How are we going to move from that manger uh, to the kingdom? Chapter 53, one of the great chapters of the Old Testament concerning what Jesus has done for us, his provisions for us. The Prince of Peace came because we have a problem. Uh, we have a problem. Uh, humanity has rebelled against their Prince of Peace and are reaping the consequences of that. 
And as a result, we are corrupted in our very nature. We are polluted and our world system, everything around us, evidences that at times. Now, how are we going to fix that? How are we going to solve this issue of the, this corruption in our very nature, our very DNA of our spiritual nature? How can that possibly be solved? How can we fix what's within us and how can we fix what's around us? Well, there's really only two basic possibilities. One is that we can fix it ourselves. We can make ourselves better. Some of you have probably seen the uh, little video clip of Bob Newhart, the comedian, who uh, is pretending to be a psychiatrist counseling a, a lady. And the lady comes to him. If you if, if you ever listen to Bob Newhart, and you can see this on YouTube, it's funny. If you ever listen to Bob Newhart, it takes him 30 minutes to say anything. So this is about a 20-minute clip in which this woman is, is saying, here's my problem. And he says, I got your solution. I can tell you exactly what to do, but you don't want to hear it. And she goes on and on. They battle back and forth. Finally, he says, okay, here's my answer. Two words. Stop it. <laughs> and then she gets mad. What do you mean stop? Stop it. Don't do it. Stop it. And on and on they go. Just stop it. Now, wouldn't that be great? Now, he's got a point there, by the way, to some degree. But wouldn't it be great if we could solve our, our spiritual problems, our problems with corruption, our problem with sin, by just stopping it? You know, we're going to, in a few days from now, we're going to have New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and we're going to turn over new leaves that will break by the 3rd of January. You know, we're going to get in shape. We're going to lose weight. We're going to do all these things we never do. Okay? Wouldn't it be great if we could turn over a new leaf and actually solve the problems? Completely? Totally? But we can't. But that is the essence of every religion in all the world, that we can better ourselves. The problem is, look at verse 4 of chapter 53. The problem is that uh, we've got some issues that we can't solve. It says in verse 4, Surely our griefs He has borne and our sorrows He has carried away. We are bound up with griefs and sorrows. Uh, These words can be translated sickness and pain. And there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. We're horribly marred by sin. Look, people know there's something wrong with them. People know, everybody knows there's something wrong with this world. People know that there's issues in their own hearts and lives that they cannot fix, that they simply cannot stop. They know that. There's a burden that they care. People know, and this time of year, by the way, we're told by the statistics that, that people feel more lonely and empty than any other time of the year. We make it merry with all our music and whatnot, like, like this is the most joyous time of the year, and we try our best. And for some people it is, but for, for more people than any other time of the year, it's a time of sorrow, it's a time of loneliness, it's a time of emptiness, and people look within themselves and they know something is missing. They know that. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we we know these things, but you know what? We don't know how to fix them. There's grief and sorrow and pain and sickness that we don't know how to fix. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You see, we don't see, we see these issues. What we don't see is the cause of those issues is sin. And our Lord tells us that is the root. And there's only one person, only one means by which that can be remedied. And that is God's plan. And so he goes on in that same verse. He says, surely our griefs he himself is born and our sorrows he has carried. Yet he, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, stricken of God and afflicted. 
Here's the picture then. He came to solve the problem we cannot solve, but the majority of people have always rejected it and even crucified him when he was on earth. And we would do the same today. Don't Don't kid yourself. We would do the exact same thing if he came today. So what's God's plan? Well, we come back to verse 4. It's not a self-help plan. He, it says, look carefully here, he himself bore. He himself carried away. He took upon himself what we could not solve. He took upon himself our emptiness, our sickness, our, our uh, sin, because we could not do anything about that at all. He did that. I think one of the reasons why Pilgrim Progress has endured and been beloved throughout the world for, for a long, long time now is because it so simply d- displays uh, what is true about our need and about the Christian life. And if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, do yourself a favor and get you a little copy this, this Christmas and read it. Or if you can't read, uh, listen to a video, you know. And, and see what made this so important for all these decades. And what is it? Christian or the pilgrim is going, he starts a journey because on his back is a, like a backpack of burdens that he cannot shake. He's done everything in his power to get rid of that burden. It's bowed him completely over. And he can't stand it any longer. So he takes off on a journey to try to find some means of getting that burden off of his back, that burden of sin. And nothing solves the problem until he comes to the foot of the cross. And in that metaphorical, allegorical way, at the foot of the cross, that that burden on his back rolls off his back, rolls down a hill into a grave in front of the cross, and the grave closes up and it's gone forever. And the burden is gone. In a beautiful, picturesque way, that's exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do. To take that burden off of you, that burden of sin that you can do nothing about and give you freedom. And that's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. Look at verse 6 with me. Look at some of the need here. Why did Jesus have to die in our place? Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This, this verse is beautiful, but it's a powerful blow against our self-esteem. It's a powerful shot at our great confidence in ourselves. Because it calls the sheep, and most of us don't know much about sheep, but the ancient world knew a lot about sheep, and we find that the human nature is much like sheep. Sheep are notorious for trying to wander away, aren't they? They're never content where they are. They always want to be somewhere else. They always find the grass greener next door. And there's nothing you can do to convince a sheep to stay home. Okay? You, you can scold them. Uh, you can punish them. You can educate them. You can love them. You can entice them. You can powder them up and put a bow on their heads. And you can give them pet names. But when you turn your back, they wander away. That's what sheep do. And so when he calls us sheep, that is no compliment. He is telling us we are like those sheep. We're always wandering away from that which is good for us. That's our nature. Why do sheep wander? That's their nature. That's what sheep do. Why do we wander? Because without Christ, that is our nature. 
And we have wandered from him and we continue to wander from him because that is our nature. So what did God have to do? Look at his plan, verse 5 of this passage. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourgings we are healed. Three great problems. The three greatest problems uh, you and I have are expressed in this verse. The three greatest problems of humanity are very quickly mentioned in this verse of Scripture. First of all, our sinful state. Our sinful state, and that is expressed in two words. The words transgression and the words iniquity. The words transgressions means that we are rebellious people. Our very nature is defiance against God. It's a a deliberate defiance against the will of God. The second word is iniquities, and that's a Hebrew word that means to bend, even to bend double. And so it's the idea that we are twisted, our, our natures are twisted, we are, we are bent, we are bent uh, in such a way that we can never straighten back up. I remember when I was a, a young boy, about 14 years old, I was mowing grass for people in the neighborhoods, making a little bit of money, and uh, I had our family lawnmower. And I'd take it down to wherever I was mowing grass, and I, would, and I would mow grass, and that was just great. And one day I was mowing grass for an elderly lady, and I hit some kind of a pipe in the ground and bent my lawnmower blade. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I knew my dad would probably bend it the other way around my head, so I, I, I didn't know quite what to do. So I took the thing off. Uh, and it just kind of bent all the way up. I took it off and took it down to some repair shop. And he said, well, we can't bend that back. It could break off. you got to buy a new one. I didn't have $5 to buy a new blade or whatever. I was in a fix. My blade was bent, and there was nothing I could do about it. Well, that's in much more important ways what's going on here. You are bent, spiritually speaking, and there's nothing you can do to solve that issue. And so he says here, look, uh, you... Concerning us, he says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Because we are defiant, rebellious people, he had to die for us. And then it says that he was crushed for our iniquities, but because of the very fact that we are, we are crushed, I mean, that we are twisted and we're bent for that very reason, he had to, to die for us. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being. Look at the next thing. Here's our, here's our next set of problems. Not only are we in a sinful state, rebellious people who are also twisted and bent people, but also we are alienated from God. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, He says in this verse. The word well-being here is the Hebrew word shalom. And it could be, and probably better should be, translated Peace. So what he is saying here, you have no peace with God. You cannot have peace with God because you are, according to Romans 5, the very enemy of God. You're alienated from God and there's, there's not a thing you can do about it, but Jesus can. And so he tells us here he was chastened for our peace, for our well-being. And then finally, we're broken people and by scourgings we are healed. We're broken. We're sick, spiritually speaking, people. The disease of sin has caused real consequences in our lives. What do, what do sick people need? They need to be healed, right? Spiritually sick people need to be healed 
of the disease that faces them, and only Christ can do that. I really liked what Martin Luther said. He was asked one time this question, what do we contribute to our salvation? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, because not everybody may be on the same page here. So I want you personally to think about that question. What do you contribute to your salvation? That's a monumental question. Well, let me tell you, Martin Luther had the right answer. He said, we contribute two things to our salvation, sin and resistance. You don't contribute a thing to your salvation. You don't come halfway and God comes halfway. You don't add a a a few religious steps along the way. You contribute your sin and your resistance against God, and he saves you because of Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, we're saved when we come to Jesus Christ by faith alone, recognizing our brokenness and our twistedness, our bentness, our sinfulness, turning from that and turning to him by faith alone. That's when Jesus Christ saves us and makes us his. You can contribute nothing. And by the way, if you think that you can contribute anything to your salvation, your good works, your good merit, your church attendance, your baptism, anything, then you don't understand the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. He's come to heal us from our disease. Not to make us feel better, to heal us. Now there's one more thing I want to talk about before we're done today. The incarnation, we've looked at its promise, or it's given in the Old Testament, a prophetic passage telling us what's going to happen. We look at the provision that Christ has made through the cross, and so Isaiah takes a beeline from chapter 9 to chapter 53, going from the incarnation as well as the kingdom, right straight to the provisions of the cross. But now there's one more thing we want to talk about, and we're going to look at that in chapter 61, and that is, what is the ultimate end of this? That is, we've seen the promise, the provision, and now its purpose. Why did Christ come at this time? As we look at that, we see a passage of Scripture that's very important here in chapter 61. Christ, let let me just give you a prelude here. Christ came to establish his kingdom. And it is an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom that he wants you and I to be in forever. He wants to invite you to an everlasting kingdom. People have always tried to establish their own kingdom, their own utopia. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was a very famous song written during the Civil War. If you listen to the words of that, it's the reason why we don't sing it. If you listen to the words of that carefully, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the Union Army having victory during the Civil War. People have always thought that somehow they would somehow turn the tide, set up a utopia. Some of the things that went on in the last year or so in our country is the idea, almost the idea that we can set up a utopian state if only we can get rid of certain injustices. Friends, that's a pipe dream. But the Lord has come to establish his kingdom, and he wants you in it. And if you're not sure that you belong in that kingdom, listen carefully as we look at a few words here. In 61 of Isaiah, Jesus, there's a quote here that Jesus, Jesus quotes these words I'm going to read in Luke chapter 4 as he begins his Galilean ministry. He's in a synagogue beginning to minister in Galilee, and he reads these exact words. 
gets him in trouble, by the way. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And when Jesus quoted these words or read these words, he stopped right there. And he, and he says, these words are being fulfilled right now. So Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill this prophecy. Jesus had come with a kingdom to give his people. He had come to, as it says here, look, look at these important words. The Lord has sent him, he's been anointed, to give good news, that's the gospel, to the, to the afflicted. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedoms to prisoners and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that is the, the, Lord, the, the year of the Lord's kingdom. He's come to proclaim all of that. So that's the good news to set the world right. Sadly, as we know, the Jews rejected him and crucified him. Here is one who has come, to, just think about this for a moment. Here is one who has come to to heal the brokenhearted, to set people in, who are in bondage to sin free, to give eternal life, to, to set up a kingdom that God had promised throughout the Old Testament. And yet they don't, they don't want it because they do not want what Christ had to offer in the way of salvation. And they rejected it. Nevertheless, we find that he's come to set up that kingdom. What, what is that kingdom like? I want you to go back to chapter 65 for a moment. We're going to skip over a lot of things we could talk about this morning. But I want to show you the kingdom that he's come to establish. In, it's in two stages. He came to set up a kingdom that we call now today the millennial kingdom. A kingdom on earth for a thousand years in which Christ will reign from from David's throne, just like Isaiah 9 said. But I want you to look at this particular section of Scripture. Look at verse 17 of chapter 65. He says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Drop down to verse 19 in the middle. Here's what this kingdom is going to look like. He says, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 we thought accursed. And they will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will, build not, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the works of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they, will, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they're still speaking, I will hear, and the wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and dust will be the serpent's food, and they will do no harm or or evil or harm on my holy mountain, says the Lord. That is a description of the thousand-year kingdom that the Lord will set up on the earth when he returns a second time. Because the world rejected him the first time, his kingdom was delayed, but not taken off the table. He's coming again, 
and he's going to set up a kingdom. We see here in this description that much of the curse of sin is, re, is rolled back. And many things are, are marvelously better than they were before. But if you also notice by reading that passage, all is not perfect either. People still die. Uh, things still go wrong. Uh, we're not in a perfect state yet. And so we're at the prelude, the, the opening stage of the kingdom Christ has promised to set up. And so to look at the rest, we have to go to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, and catch just a glimpse of what the eternal kingdom will be like. And notice the upgrade in this eternal kingdom. The millennial kingdom will roll over into the eternal kingdom. And so much, all of chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation could be read. I'm going to only read chapter 22 and verses 1 through 7 to show you the intent of the incarnation. Here is what the incarnation is really about. Here is why God became man, to give us this life eternally. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 22, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now pick it up here, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must take, must take place soon. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Our Lord came as a man. He entered time and space that you and I can live eternally with him. This, these special promises are only for those who receive him as their Lord and Savior, who turn from the brokenness of their own sinfulness and turn to the only one who can save them because of what he's done on the cross of Calvary for them. We know something as Christians, for those of you who are Christians, that the rest of the world doesn't grasp. We know two things. We know that this world and its pe- all the people in it are more wicked than we can possibly realize. And we also know that God's grace and his plan of salvation is more glorious than we could ever think of, could ever imagine. The awfulness of sin is poured out. The incarnation is necessary because of the awfulness of sin. But he's come that we might not live out the consequences of that sinfulness. And so as we think of this manger scene and all that goes with the incarnation, it's easy to get real nostalgic, isn't it? And forget the, the awesome task before our Savior to save you and I from that life of eternal death. And so I plead with you today, my friends, that if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're not absolutely certain of that. That this Christmas season, 
this time right now, you'll give careful attention to why the Savior has come. And he's come for you to save you from your sin and to take you to be with him forever. And when you know him, you can have this final prayer that's found in chapter 22, verse 20, the last prayer of scripture that says this. He says, yes, I'm coming quickly, the Lord said, amen. And then John says this, come, Lord Jesus. Can we say that together? Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, I hope he comes today. I hope we don't have another year. I, I hope we, have a, 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 we meet again around the throne of God, gather at the river uh, with him. Maybe, that, maybe it's this year. We don't know. But we do know this. He's made every provision for you to gather together with the saints forever. And I hope today you consider that carefully. We want, we want to be joined together forever with him. Father, we do thank you for this time of year. We, we, we enjoy it. We enjoy the many pleasures that come with this season. But Lord, may we contemplate seriously the reason for the incarnation, the purpose behind it. And that you came into our space, Lord, to save us from our sin, that, that, you can, that we can join you forever in your kingdom. And so, Lord, we give you praise for that today. And we, we pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not know you as Savior. May this be the season, maybe even the very day, when they will do that. When they will come to you by faith alone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.